You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I thought I would talk today about um, uh, skepticism. Hey, Jim, it's good to see you. Very good to see you. Um, I thought I would talk briefly before discussing uh, John's Gospel and sort of the historicity of John's Gospel, which uh, we've been going through sort of some of the content internally in John and how John looks at the nature of truth, the nature of life, the nature of belief. Next week we'll be, we'll be talking about the sign of the water into wine. How would you convince somebody to even remotely take seriously a story like Jesus turning water into wine? Christopher Hitchens famously used to say it was his favorite story but not for reasons that challenged his unbelief. Uh, so we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit more about sort of things outside of John, uh, uh, how critical scholars look at John and things like this, some of the historicity issues, which is why this sheet has a quotation from Thucydides, which, is, uh, which would not have encouraged me if I were coming in here to sit down and look at that. <laughs> I've been like, no, seriously? <laughs> But there's, there's method to the madness, so you'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about what I think is uh, sort of led to the problem of the definition wars. Uh, and it relates only to John to the extent that John was written to persuade the, the person who doesn't believe, by definition a non-believer or an unbeliever, uh, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing they may have eternal life in his name. Uh, so we live in an age of skepticism. I hope that doesn't surprise you. Uh, we've entered, we entered the skeptical age pretty much since Descartes, but there were classical skeptics as well. I'm a classicist, so there were ancient skeptics. Uh, Arcesilaus is famous for saying, nothing is certain, not even that. <laughs> so, uh, but modern skepticism has led to what is the, the definition wars, of course. Meaning we, we all know, we see in the news, just a war over the definition of simple words, very simple words. Uh, and it's rather shocking for people who've been around a few decades to just, why are we having a war over the definition of terms? And uh, so the, the modern culture, this is just one take on it, many other takes, but the modern culture, like uh, in every case, a culture is formed by tributaries. But tributaries add, add water, right? to the big river. They add power and energy into the big river. So the tributaries that are feeding what I'll call the definition wars uh, are, number one, that there was a reaction against the church, against Christianity that you're all familiar with. It was called the Reformation. That was a, that was a force of opposition to the church, to church leadership for its moral and intellectual failures, moral for obvious reasons, won't go into those details, but intellectual because of, largely because of the reaction to some of the early scientific revolutionaries. Of course, the church was divided in how it responded to Galileo and Copernicus and so on, but, uh, but it lost confidence anyway among many people who were Christians within the church, chief of all the famous Martin Luther. So that was a reaction. The Reformation, of course, was a reaction to the failure of the church. Um, people today still feel like the church is failing. And they're still reacting to it, of course. So um, this uh, skepticism then uh, led to the idea, uh, which Luther himself openly promoted, that individual Christians need to decide 
on what is the truth of Christianity. Individual Christians need to get into their Bibles and look at what is the truth of Christianity. You can no longer trust trust the leadership and uh, what they say or have said. Uh, That's a somewhat simplistic way to look at it, but that's the gist of Luther's uh, sort of case. Uh, The Enlightenment that followed it was also just a kind of echo in the same canyon. It was the individual not just trusting, uh, distrusting church leadership on what it defined as true Christianity, but it was skepticism applied by the individual to the truth of all of Christianity, whether the Christian faith itself was true, not just what version of it is true, but whether any of it is true. And of course, there are many famous skeptics like Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, who produced his own New Testament, minus the supernatural stuff, where he created sort of his own version of Christianity uh, that was um, a kind of what he called demythologized version of Christianity. Okay, so that was the Enlightenment, another step of skepticism, a reaction against the church going in the opposite direction, of course. And then you get to what we call postmodernism. postmodernism. This is a three-minute survey, so we're skipping a bunch of stuff. But uh, there's some other things in between there. But postmodernism, of course, is the next step, which is, uh, which is moving away from doubting not just what version of Christianity is true and not just whether Christianity itself is true, but whether there's any objective truth out there at all, whether uh, we, there is any referee objectively that can arbitrate on any kind of major truth, and the individual just come around here and come behind me. It's no big deal. There's chairs over here, uh, the, or in front of me, either way. Uh, the um, <laughs> I could care less. Uh, four kids, a couple grandkids, and thousands of students taught. I don't really pay attention anymore, right, Jim? <laughs> you just keep teaching. Uh, you just keep going. The uh, so it, so the individual truths experience reigns, and this is not new to you, okay? I'm just showing the connection was the start of it. The the earthquake was the doubt of the church and the failure of the church intellectually and morally. So uh, the individual truth, our own individual experiences get to to define what is true, what's true for you, different from what's true for me, and so on. Now this uh, would have done, has done okay in the world, but it really did well in America because we're a people who pride ourselves on individualism, rugged individualism, individual liberty, and so on. So this idea that each of us individually get to decide what's true for us, and that's different from what's true for you, and there's certain truth to it anyway, in a strange way. It's an objective truth that that's true. Uh, So it it just sat well, very well, in America. Uh, And so we sit... Uh, in that sort of skepticism where, well, that's your opinion and so on. Unless science enters in, it used to be that science sort of arbitrated as a kind of final thing. It became sort of the new church, as you know. But even that has now waffled a bit. Science doesn't see everything, and so people are okay. I interview, I go to atheist conventions and stuff, interview atheists all the time, ask them very pointedly, uh, you know, their views on certain things that don't seem very scientific, uh, but they're popular in, in the world, and how do they take them? And, uh, and I frequently am told just flat out, science just doesn't have access to all the truths of human experience, and that's the end of it. Which, of course, Christians have been saying tr- as well, 
but uh, so in, anyway, so that's that situation now. Um, the uh, other major tributary then to lead to the definition wars, right? Because you, you're defining, now the question is what is anything? Even simple things, you could have a war over what a thing is objectively. And the other tributary feeding modern, the modern culture is uh, also a, a Christian phenomenon, which is loving your neighbor. So everybody says you should love your neighbor. Uh, pretty much everybody I've interviewed and met, had conversations with, they, except like Nietzsche, you know, someone like that, will say, of course we should love our neighbor. That's like obvious. We should at least love our neighbor. That, that's just universal. It's not really universal across history, but uh, it became universal after Jesus. And it, of course, it's not from Jesus originally. It's from Leviticus. But uh, this idea that we should love our neighbor is no longer just that we should have compassion on our neighbor. That's the original idea. Uh, Jesus dined with you know, prostitutes, we've heard it a thousand times, because that's what the Bible says, actually. But of course, when the evangelists say that Jesus had dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors, you rarely hear that one added, uh, but the idea was, from the evangelist perspective, that these people have clearly messed up their lives, morally. Their lives have become a wreckage, and Jesus has compassion on them and has a solution to deliver them from that wreckage. But of course, that's not the way. Now, love your neighbor is talked about. Normally, love your neighbor has shifted a little bit in its meaning from compassion to affirmation. You must not just have compassion on someone on the assumption that their life has become self-destructive in ways that, hey, you can relate to it, because all of us are self-destructive from sin, but uh, rather, and there's some solution, you know, to help people, rather it's, I affirm you in that. That's real loving your neighbor. But again, that's moving the goalposts away. So those two big things are probably sufficient to explain the gist of why we live in the kind of culture we do, where you have these definition wars. And the, the war fluctuates between those two categories. It's Sometimes it's each person's truth is their own truth. It's not for you to decide and so on. And other times it's you don't love your neighbor if you disagree with my definition. Okay, So it's usually those two things, which of course themselves come out of Christianity. I, I don't have time to go into why information, the explosion of the digital technology is, is huge. There's only four major, major shifts in the history of the world, and they all relate to linguistic innovations. The invention of writing created civilizations. The invention of the alphabet created democracy in Greece. The invention of the movable type printing press created the modern world, the Reformation, Enlightenment, and so on, postmodernism. And now we've got our fourth one, which is digital technology. I can wear it. Um, so uh, my grandpa lived, I guess, 500 years after the printing press movable type you know, was invented. He could read. He didn't read much. <laughs> he read some Westerns here and there, but that's about it. Uh, were there essays in philosophy and journals from professors in France on stuff that seemed out, would have seemed outrageous to him? Sure, but he never really heard about it. He read the newspaper a little bit, but that didn't really get into the newspaper hardly. But now, every grandpa 
has the world telling them 24-7 exactly what to think and what's true. And it's already laid out for you that if you don't agree with it, then you're on, quote, the wrong side of history, end quote. It's, a, it's an information war. And uh, we're testing the limits of virtual reality. How far can virtual re reality be accepted as real reality? Uh, so anyway, that's just a little survey. Get us to some of the background of John's skepticism. Uh, why John, that is, is unique in addressing some of the issues today. Because he's has specifically in mind the unbeliever. And I uh, just don't have time to get into some details where John's narrative actually addresses some deep skepticism. We'll talk a little bit next week about the nature of truth from the first miracle and how John looks at truth in, this, in, in terms of the revelation that came through the signs. But today, it's just a discussion on the uh, idea of truth in the sense of historicity. If I open this book, should I expect it to give me an account of what actually happened? Is it, is it an account of true things told in a truthful way? And of course, there's a massive amount of, surprise, skepticism about that. Uh, when I took my degree in classics, I believe every one of my classics professors were either agnostic or atheist. Some of them did traffic in biblical scholarship as well and took the standard sort of critical uh, scholarly views, some of which are, are fine and some of which are, are problematic. Anyway, John clearly uh, provided, he told us, this book, uh, these signs, the account of these signs in chapter 20, so that uh, we might have evidence to support our belief. That is, for John, our belief needed something to support it. You, if you judge something to be true, then you'll believe in it. So he provides evidence for that, that he does that explicitly. In, in chapter 20, we covered that previous sessions. Uh, but again, are these signs actual events? Uh, some people say no. You know, I had professors say they, they doubted whether any of these accounts were even meant to be presented as real events, but were sort of known mythological, essentially parables of, uh, of things that didn't really happen and so on. Uh, so... In fact, a common thing that was said was, look, in, in classical world, you hear this more from, not from classics professors, but from a popular world out today, is, you know, back then when they wrote history and biography, they didn't even have the same standards uh, we have today, which is true. Anybody who reads a gospel knows that the biographies of the gospels are a very different kind of literature in some ways from the, a modern biography uh, like the ones written by McCullough and so on. So it's just very different, it's true. Uh, we're, we're sort of obsessed with hyper accuracy, which is, is good, it serves its, its purpose. But we also uh, sometimes miss some really big truths. I mean, most of us in our lives aren't living under this constant sense that hyper accuracy is really ultimately all that matters in my marriage and in my relationship with my kids and my friends, is hyper accuracy. That's all, all in the end that really matters. I mean. Accuracy, yes, but I mean in a more general way. So there's a basic level of trustworthiness, but you know, it's, we just don't hold we, the way real scholarship works. You know, is it's in a bubble. Okay, so this kind of literature wasn't written like that. Nonetheless, in the ancient world, historians and biographers wrote with the idea that uh, eyewitness accounts should be the source of the information. That's 
pretty common in the classical authors. They sometimes stated expressly that their information comes from eyewitnesses. The assumption is good history comes from eyewitnesses. Lucian, an ancient Greek, wrote an actual essay on writing history in which he says it needs to be grounded in uh, eyewitness sources uh, because it's meant to be conveying real events. As Aristotle said, sorry for mentioning all these people, none of us want to ever have to have heard from again after high school or college, and here I am baptizing you into them, rebaptizing you even worse. Uh, so, uh, but nonetheless, they did say these things, and you know they lived before John, so they kind of matter, or at the time of John. The question is, is John interested in this eyewitness stuff? Is the Gospel of John interested? Let's just take that one book. Is, is he interested in, in eyewitness testimony? Well, the traditional view that this guy named John, who was the fisherman, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee, uh, that he, at some point later, decades later, sat down and wrote this gospel, is not the normal view nowadays accepted within critical biblical scholarship. Okay? Um, there are, of course, scholars who still do accept the traditional view, but it's not widely held among the critical, the so-called critical scholars, like Dr. Bart Ehrman from North Carolina, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, but uh, so, uh, in fact, normally what you hear is that the Gospel of John is anonymous and, uh, and that the evangelists uh, definitely were not um, eyewitnesses. And let me give you just one example here at the end of John. It's very important uh, from chapter 20. Actually, you have it on the sheet, don't we? Yeah. We can look at it here at the end. Uh, the, the final uh, paragraph here at the bottom. Sorry, I only, <laughs> I only brought like 16 copies because... There wasn't a th uh, 500 people coming to listen to these in the previous Sundays. I don't know what the, I don't know what the topic was today or what they put in the in the coffee, uh, but they should keep serving it. That's, that's obvious. Uh, so this this is the this is chapter 20 verse uh, excuse me chapter 21 uh, verses 20 to 25. But I'm just looking at the final paragraph there on the sheet. Uh, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things now. It's just told us about this guy who is the beloved disciple who was walking behind Peter and Jesus. And Peter said, you know, what's going to happen to this guy? Because Jesus just told Peter, you're going you're to be martyred. And so Peter says, yeah, what about this other guy? And then Jesus says, yeah, it's not for you to be concerned about that. And then the author says, this is the disciple, meaning the guy that's trailing Peter and Jesus, who's walking behind him. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, okay? Now, the way a critical scholar reads that is that the author, the narrator, is telling you about somebody else. That makes sense, right? The writer is telling you about somebody else, this guy who's following Peter and Jesus. He's called the beloved disciple in the book, okay? So this beloved disciple is the one who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. So this beloved disciple wrote up some things about Jesus, okay? But the author, our narrator, is not that, that guy, okay? And we know. Now the we, this part has been added by some other group of people who serve as sort of sealers of the testimony of the gospel. That's why it's in the plural. We know that his testimony is true. And it's a little bit gray whether that means the author or this beloved disciple. 
Now, there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them written to be written, I suppose? I suppose. Well, that's now another hand added to the end of the book. Someone in the first person singular is saying, I suppose the world itself couldn't contain it. So this is now yet another hand involved in the composition of the book. Okay? You, you follow all that easily? You've got the beloved disciple guy wrote some things. Then you have the narrator who's put together the book that we have, we call John. And then you have a group of people who are giving testimony to the whole book. And then someone else adds a final statement, I suppose. Okay, so that's the uh, traditional way that, um, that this is interpreted. All right, got that? And you have your answer how to explain you agree or disagree with that, right? Uh, well, welcome to my world. I got, I got five messages sitting in, in my YouTube channel this morning who are challenging one of the videos I've done explaining what's wrong with these kind of views and it's just nonstop. Okay? Uh, people disagreeing, which is good. I mean, health can be healthy. Um, all right, so did the, is, is the traditional view right? That's really what we're taking up today. Did this guy named John the Apostle write the book, or at least some guy who was a disciple named John, uh, or is, is that just, you know, just tradition and Christians because, you know, they drink the Kool-Aid, uh, you know, they never really think about these things, they don't question them, and, uh, and then if you challenge them, they just hide in their little badger hole and, and pretend that uh, it's, it's nothing, you know, that scholarship hasn't happened and we haven't moved on since uh, 100 A.D., uh, well, I mean, the truth is, actually, that does describe probably a lot of Christians, I suppose. Um, that's, but in our day, people are skeptical. And they, guess what? They watch a lot of YouTube. It's not all cat videos. <laughs> they, they have private questions. They go to YouTube, and they find scholars upon scholars upon scholars being interviewed. And guess what? These scholars have quite a platform. NPR loves these scholars. Okay? So you get to hear that a lot. You don't hear much the other side of the coin. But you do hear that side a lot because it challenges the traditional view, which is always kind of fun in a way. Anyway, you know, it's just kind of fun to think maybe there's some intrigue, Tom Clancy-like even, Potter, or what's the guy that wrote? Dan Brown-like, you know, some, something intrigue just sounds so kind of more interesting than the boring old truth. Um, so, uh, so what shall we say? Well, let's start with just the name John, okay, and set that aside for a moment. Uh, critical scholars, of course, are correct, are they not? Anybody who's read the book knows the name John never appears in the book as the, as the name of the author of the book. That's true. Um, and uh, so why do we think it's John? Like, why do we still think it's John? Well, because the earliest church fathers from pre-200 A.D., John was written, we think, in the 90s, okay? Maybe closer to 100 AD. But uh, we don't really know. It could be any time between 50 and 100 to be true, but, but most scholars tend to think it was written later because even early church fathers say it was written later. So within 50 uh, years and some, some other fathers within 100 years, all of them say the author was John. It's unanimous. There's six or so 
of these fathers from different parts of the world, Egypt, Ephesus, and different places, uh, Corinth, and all over, uh, different types of, in different types of books. Uh, there's just, it's a diverse sort of set of witnesses. Okay, so when you usually, when you have a varied kind of witness like this from different geographical parts spread, and it's unanimous, and on top of that, no one ever attributed the book to anybody else. No one said Barnabas wrote it or Nathaniel wrote it or anything like that. There's no record of anything like that. So in my world, in the classical world, that's enough. Generally, that's enough. Now, if there's something internal to the book that's a little different, that might make you doubt that. But in terms of just the evidence that's called external evidence, that would be so overwhelming. That's better evidence than we have for like Arius writing the biography of Alexander the Great, for sure. Way better. And I've never read anybody question Arius's authorship. But the Bible gets unique skepticism. Some of that's okay with me. It should have some unique skepticism given the, grand, grand, uh, the gr grandness of the claims. But, uh, you know, a lot of people who do biblical scholarship, that's all they've done. <laughs> they haven't read much Thucydides or Arius. That's just the truth, you know? So they tend to be just in that world and that's it. Uh, whereas uh, I, I'm a classicist, so I bring a little different perspective because I spent most of my time reading all the literature outside the Bible and then come more to the Bible as just yet another book among many hundreds of books that you read. Uh, so anyway, the question is, is there internal reasons to doubt all that unanimity and the earliness of all these witnesses who claim the author was John. And those, those, by the way, like Irenaeus and stuff, I think make it pretty clear the author was John the son of Zebedee. Some disagree. There are some biblical scholars who think that John was a guy named John the Elder, a different John. They're in the minority, but there are some who think it was John, but a different disciple named John who comes up in the writings of Papias. I won't say anything more about that. So um, are there internal reasons? Well, I just gave you an internal reason, didn't I? All this stuff at the end, it says that the, the narrator is telling you that they're not a disciple, that there was a disciple, the beloved disciple, who wrote some things down about Jesus, but that's not our author. So even the author is telling you they're not one of the disciples. That's why it's so important that we went through that. That's in it. That is the basis for deciding the author clearly wasn't John, one of the disciples of Jesus, because the author tells you they weren't one of the disciples of Jesus. So therefore, it couldn't be John. And all these ancient guys, like these church fathers, apparently didn't know how to read. <laughs> or it's the reverse. Someone's not knowing how to read, because all the early fathers, even the commentators like Chrysostom and so on, all the commentators on John interpret John in the traditional way. So somebody doesn't know how to read. And we get to decide that today. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, so let's look at uh, Thucydides. Now suddenly Thucydides seems to matter a little bit, doesn't he? Uh, Thucydides is the most famous historian. He's the historian of historians in the ancient Greek world. Predates, of course, John by uh, you know 400 plus years. But uh, the question is, or 500 years. So how did he talk about himself when he wrote his history. So let's, let's read the prologue. Uh, Thucydides, 
An Athenian wrote hit the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians. Now, I'm going to read that like the way the critical scholars do, okay, of the Bible. Well, clearly Thucydides isn't the author, correct? Because whoever wrote this is talking about Thucydides as if it's another guy. Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote some history. Okay, fine. That's some guy named Thucydides wrote a history. Uh, and the evidence which, uh, you can see I put some ellipses in here in the prologue so we don't have to read too much. The evidences which an inquiry leads me to trust. Ah, uh, now it's our author. He's talking about himself, me, who's obviously not Thucydides. All point to the conclusion there was nothing on a great scale. And the first person known to us, ah, there's now another group of people putting their hand into the prologue, writing in the first person plural, us, a group of people. By tradition and as having established a navy is Minos, in Minos. For I suppose, I suppose, we're back to our first person singular author, if Lacedaemon uh, were to become desolate, Eucles, the general sent to the other commander in Thrace, Thucydides. So Eucles, this is a little bit later from the prologue, Eucles sent a general, Thucydides, who wrote these things. Okay, so our author's saying that Thucydides is a general in the war, and he wrote up some things, and our author is using his book. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Please, if you ever take a degree in classics, don't ever suggest anything like that. That would just show you've not read much literature yet. That's just sheer nonsense. It's really, really embarrassing. If I did that in a class, even students would be like, that's... Because... You don't have to read much classical literature to realize that Thucydides, of course, Thucydides is referring to himself as the author in the third person. And that when he uses the first person singular, me, that's normal. And that when he uses the, what we tend to call the royal we, not quite the same thing, but it's similar to that, he uses the first person plural on occasion. And he even states at one point, uh, Thucydides who wrote these things, but he's referring to his own book, the book that you're reading. So this is very common. In fact, it's so common I could have a whole list of authors, Polybius and Nepos, and I just go on, who do the exact same thing. Now, if you're not reading them, and all you do is look at Bible, and then you came to the end of John and read all this, you might start thinking, well, this is talking about the beloved disciple who wrote these things, someone else. And then the author took those things and then some other group in the first person plural, but that would all just be nonsense. And it was nonsense <laughs> for a good reason for most of history because people knew how to read the literature. So if you're in the room and you disagree with me, of course that's acceptable. Uh, I'm a nobody anyway. You, we live in the modern age. You're an individual. You judge the truth for yourself, whether you think Thucydides is a sufficient parallel. But I can tell you right now, I've never come across a scholar who's ever suggested that there were multiple authors behind Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War based on these pronoun usages. It would just seem nonsense to me, and I think to most classicists, and I've asked a, asked a few of my friends what they think of it.
and I've gotten the same kind of response. Um, that it all seems a bit uh, convoluted and even conspiratorial. Uh, I did a video on this on our iPub YouTube channel, by the way. If you want to sign up to get uh, emails from us, I, I only send out free, like we put out a new video or a new interview. Uh, I'm Bill Wartman, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which just means nothing. But uh, I teach classics at Samford. And, uh, and then I run IPUB, Institute for the Public Understanding of the Bible, and we promote meaningful conversation with the non-believing uh, about the Bible. So, uh, but if I send emails out, it's just telling you, hey, we did an interview. I have a podcast with a really good friend of mine who's an atheist, former Christian, now an atheist. I'm a former atheist, now Christian. I became a Christian when I was in university, but grew up atheist. And uh, so we interview people. And we're good friends, so it's a very uh, nice kind of environment to have conversations where we can talk about very uh, things that tend to raise the temperature in the room, but not for us. Um, so, uh, because our friendship, I think, uh, has has been has gone through all those conversations. I can't imagine talking about anything now that would that would change that. But um, anyway, you can sign up over there if you want the, the emails. But I did do an extended video on this uh, if you're interested. In trying to get much more of the of the details. All right, so let's finish. Let's try and take the final uh, five or ten minutes and just survey how I think somebody in the ancient world would actually read uh, John. That's good. Uh, the Gospel of John. It doesn't have all of John on it, unfortunately. It's just the quotes. But uh, if you have a, a phone, you have a copy of John, and I highly recommend for this portion in particular that you follow along. It would just be too fast. Uh, for you to listen, or I think it'll be hard for you to listen, harder. So uh, I'll have to skip lots of things. You can go to the video and watch it to get more of the details. But let's just start with verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. I think you're all familiar with that. Uh, And the Word made all things. And then verse uh, 14, the Word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. Now, in an ancient work, in a classical work of literature, the assumption is that an author is going to either sign off their work or sign on to their work, either one or both. They sign on to the work or they sign off the work, identifying themselves, their relationship to the work, and the nature of the work. That would be a normal way. They don't have book titles. The Gospels weren't published with book titles. The Gospel, according to John, was added later. They... they the book title is in the prologue where they introduce the author and the nature of the work and so on. Okay, And sometimes they do it without naming themselves. Nepos never names himself. But we know Nepos wrote it based on his, he works himself in, uh, whatever, I won't go to Arius. There's ways for them to work themselves in Tacitus into the work so you know the identity of the author. They don't always state their name. Sometimes they do. Many times they do. Sometimes they don't. Their name never appears in the work, and yet there is zero controversy outside of the work of who wrote it. Okay? That's normal. All right, so in verse 14, we're signing on to the work. It's the beginning of our gospel. We get this reference. We have seen his glory. And, of course, that is a reference to the author, is it not? We The author has been an actual witness to the glory of Jesus that 
was the word of God become flesh, meaning the author is stating he is a disciple who actually was a witness to the bodily glorification of Jesus, meaning he glorified who he was in his body. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. He dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. So that's the author. Again, an ancient reader would immediately recognize the author is, is claiming he's actually a witness to this person's life. Okay? Because that's what you do as an ancient author. You identify yourself and your relationship to the work. And then the nature of the work. And it can be either at the beginning or the end or both. Okay, when you get to chapter 1, verse 29, it says the next day Jesus, uh, uh, sorry, he, meaning John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And then verse 35, the same thing happens. Only this time it says there were two disciples who heard him say this. And uh, one of the disciples was uh, Andrew. And he went and found Peter. This is verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak, John the baptizer, and followed Jesus was Andrew. So there's two disciples at the Jordan River. One of them is Andrew. That's the brother of Peter. And then the other disciple isn't named. Well, of course, you don't need to mention the other disciple since he plays no role. Unless <laughs> he's our author. And it could be. It may not be. Could be. It may not be. Okay, you can go either way. I think it is for reasons that come later, but it's okay if you just say, yeah, I don't believe that. Fine. Okay, then it says in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus, you know, has collected disciples. It says, on the third day there was a wedding, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the author is placing the disciples then at the event. And Jesus turns the water to wine, and what does it say in verse 11? He manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him, because you see our author is a disciple. So he can tell you what the disciples' reaction was to the event. You see how careful the author is being to put himself into the event, connect his eyewitness to the event. Okay? Now chapter 2, verse 13, there was the festival of the Passover. They go to Jerusalem, and uh, this is where Jesus purges the temple, and they say, what, you know, what evidence do you have? And he says in verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said it, it took 46 years to build this temple. What, you know, you're going to raise it up in three days. And then our author says in verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. But you see, our, dis our author is a disciple who can tell you that at the time Jesus said these words, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, the disciples didn't understand it. But subsequent to his resurrection, the disciples reflected on what Jesus said and they remembered it and they connected it to his resurrection. But you have to be a disciple to be able to give that eyewitness account, you see. Do you see how, I'm trying to show you how careful our author is to present himself as a disciple. I could keep going, of course. They go to Samaria and they pause at the, there's the conversation with Jesus at the well. And what happens? The disciples come back from the city having bought, purchased some food. And when they arrive, it says in chapter four that the disciples are quite surprised Jesus is talking alone with a woman. 
But then how would our author know that? You see, because he is one of the disciples. He can present to you the account of how their disciples reacted to it. And they said it among themselves, and then Jesus called them on it. Okay? Uh, I could keep going and going and going. I do in the video if you want to really follow all the details. Okay? And it all leads up to the author in chapter 21, talking about a group of people who are at the Lake of Galilee fishing. And Jesus appears to them. And we know by the end of the story that one of those disciples is the author. So, because you're at the end of the book, the author is giving you more information about his identity. He begins to talk about who he is. He is the beloved disciple, and so on. He gives you more clarity on who he is as the author. But the interesting thing is that he lists who was there that was fishing. Right? Peter and Andrew and... Nathaniel, he lists the disciples. So you know among that group is the author. And guess who he says is there and names them? The sons of Zebedee. Now, you know that the son of Zebedee, to say you're a son of Zebedee is your name. You, You understand, right? I mean, I'm Bill of Minnesota, son of Richard. That's how you would say your name in the ancient world. You're Jesus, son of Joseph. Simon, son of Jonah. This is how you identify people. It's their name. So, if in fact the author was the son of Zebedee, John, then it wouldn't be true, would it, to say that the author is unnamed in the book. It would be factually untrue to make that claim if in fact the early fathers were right that it was John the son of Zebedee. Maybe not his whole name, but it's at least some of his name. (laughs) All right, anyway, that's some internal evidence. The final question would be, okay, so one of the disciples wrote it, but why should I think they weren't just embellishing the whole thing and it's all just, you know, essentially a mythology? And here it gets a little trickier because you have to go to the very sort of seams of the book that aren't necessarily the main things in the book to try and catch them what they really think. Isn't that the way it is? Isn't that the way it works? It works that way in my house. So go ahead. So do you, what can you say about different translations of the Bible as to whether they mention John? In English translations? Well, look at the ESV. I mean, it's names throughout. Like it's just over and over and over. John the baptizer's name is throughout. John in the sense of the baptizer. But, but those are two different people. Yeah. In fact, John is never called the baptizer in John because he doesn't need to be differentiated from the other John like in the other Gospels. So in this book, there's only one John named as John. So there's no need to add the epithet uh, of the baptizer. Yeah. Not related necessarily to the authorship. Could be, but you know. Uh, All right. So um, the, uh, you have to go to the seams anyway. You know how it is in, in your house, right? You, it's those little comments you drop on the side of your conversation that gets you in trouble. Because <laughs> they reveal what you really think. Right? So, uh, what does John really think? Well, we, we learned something already today. John told you Jesus said something and the disciples didn't know what it meant. 
Now, he didn't need, if he's just reinventing the stories, there's no need to do that. Why even bother with that? I can't think of any reason you would need to do that. Because there's many places in the gospel where Jesus says things and the disciples do appear to understand him. There's no, why would you have to invent a time where they suddenly don't understand him? So the fact that he tells you they didn't understand him, how would you? It was pre-resurrection anyway. But then later they connected it to the resurrection is at least some indication, that little statement, that John is differentiating what Jesus actually said versus what he meant. He's not afraid to tell you that he said something that people misunderstood, including the disciples, and that only later the disciples came to understand. In other words, what Jesus said stands as is. He doesn't need to cook the books. He just tells you what he said, and then he tells you what he meant based on reflection later, but notice he's differentiating the two. I, I see no reason to have to do that uh, if all you're doing is just inventing the story from, from scratch, more or less, or embellishing it to such a point that what he originally said really does, is irrelevant. It's what he meant that matters anyway, isn't it? So the fact that John does that there, now he does it at the end of the book as well. There's this little story, we didn't really read the detail, we have to close, uh, where um, Jesus is, is asked, you know, what about uh, this, uh, this beloved disciple from Peter, right? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says these words, if I will, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? And then John tells you, the rumor spread that he wasn't going to die. And no doubt as he got older and older, that rumor took on even more life. He wasn't going to die until Jesus came. So you knew if he was alive, Jesus was going to be coming at some point. And because he's getting older, it must mean he's going to be coming soon. And John dispels that. And he says, that's not what he actually said. I know a lot of you understand it this way. But it's wrong. Here's what he actually said. Because you see, he was there. What he said was more ambiguous. If I want that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now listen, for most of us, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, no one's writing dissertations on the, the theology of this statement. It's not, it's, for, for practical purposes, it's not a major theological statement in the book. It's just conf a confusion that arose amongst disciples in the churches. But John, the writer, is careful to say what actually Jesus said, even on something which, granted for him, meant a lot. Okay, anyway, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, for its clarity, for its light, and we pray we would uh, ourselves be giving attention to these words as carefully as our author did. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.